Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh 91.3 FM that is what you tuned to this is your program questions and answers I'm your host Yasmina Peterson and in studio answering all of these questions this evening we have none other than Malina Abdurrahman Khan in studio we are taking all of your questions via the SMS line only you can send through SMS 47913 alternatively you can email me jasmina at vocfm.co.za Malina assalamu alaikum to you Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. How are you, sister Yasmina, and the listeners of the Voice of the Cape? I'm alhamdulillah, Malina. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah, thumma alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, Malina. Shukran once again for making time to spend in our company this evening and answering all of the questions that our listeners have, inshallah. We are going to be heading into the questions now. It says, Assalamu alaikum, Malina, and presenter. If the father has five sons but not Muslim, they then accepts Islam. How is the will executed? The boys were born out of Islamic wedlock. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. What I understand from this question is that there's a uh, a brother that was uh, married, a non-Muslim married, had five kids. Then him and his family embraced Islam. And the questioner is asking, asking that these five children were conceived prior to the father becoming married and therefore he said they were born out of Islamic wedlock. Uh, and if that is my correct understanding of the question, then uh, we should appreciate and understand that when a person accepts Islam, Islam does not require him to re-perform his marriage that was already performed uh, in his previous religion, especially if those the religion that he held previously was one of the books such as Christianity and Judaism. If a Jew or a Christian got married according to Christian law or the law of Judaism and thereafter him or his him alone or him with his wife accepts Islam, Islam will consider the marriage of them in Christendom and Judaism to be valid and thus the children conceived in that marriage to be legitimate children. So if the question here is that a brother became Muslim and he conceived children prior to becoming Muslim, then we consider that marriage of his prior to Islam to be a valid marriage and we consider his children to be legitimate children in which case they will inherit from him as how children usually inherit from their parents uh, which is based on a double single ratio as discussed under the law of Islamic inheritance and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much for that Marina 47913 alternatively Assalamu alaikum. hope you are all well what is the view of cutting ties with one's mother someone has an argument with me saying that it's that it if one is that it is one allowed to cut ties with one's mother if she disobeys Allah's laws. I know this isn't so, but do not have knowledge enough to argue my point. Apparently, they feel that when the mother got married without asking the children, that was wrong of her to do so, even though they both Muslim. Shukran. We thank the sister for writing into us over here, seeking clarity and guidance. And I feel this is a very important lesson for all listeners that before engaging in any discussion and topic, it's very it's imperative that we seek guidance from religious scholars such that we do not speak out of our own accord or we don't speak and develop opinions based on ignorance. Uh, in this particular instance over here, one is never allowed to be disobedient to one's parents, to one's mother. Uh, unless the mother or father directly 
instructs you to be disobedient to Allah. So a mother tells the son, drink alcohol. In that instance, the son can show disobedience to his mother because the obedience of Allah gets preference over the obedience of his mother. Uh, however, other than a situation where the mother or father directly instructs you to be disobedient to Allah, one is not allowed to show disobedience to one's a mother or father under any circumstance even if they're not muslim even if they follow a different religion it's imperative that we show them kindness that we show them love uh, that we understand that paradise lies beneath the mother's feet uh, on this occasion if children are upset with their mother for she for getting married without without their consent or without consulting them then this is no grounds for them to be upset because they are not in control of the mother and many a times a lady uh, would become over concerned about how her children feel about uh, her moving on with her life and finding another spouse that the mother many a times has to suffer and it's unfair for children to put their parents in such a position or situation thus the mother from the very outset did not was not required to consult her children before getting married even though uh, one may argue that uh, on a uh, uh, perhaps ethical, or one may argue that uh, perhaps the best thing would have been for her to consult and speak to her children, especially if they are themselves uh, adults and young married, uh, uh, especially if the kids are old and adults themselves and perhaps married in the first few years of marriage, then it would may have be, may have been better for the mother to consult with the children uh, because they do carry with them certain life experiences. However, the mother, it's not incumbent upon her to do so. And the fact that she did not do so does not give the children in any way a reason to want to be disobedient to her, a reason not to respect her or to honor her. Uh, these children should be told with wisdom, with hikmah, in a beautiful, kind way that what they are doing is not correct, is impermissible. Their mother was fully entitled to remarry again. Uh, they should respect that decision of her. Uh, the fact that she did not do what was perhaps best or more appropriate in consulting them that is something that they could perhaps feel bad about but at the end of the day their mother is their mother uh, by cutting ties with your mother these young men and women should know that by cutting ties with their mother they are closing their door to jannah uh, thus they should be advised that the mother deserves honor the mother deserves respect and we can never ever repay our mothers back for that which they have done for us a lady a man once traveled from yemen and i'll conclude this Answer with this very short story. A man once traveled from Yemen carrying his mother on his back all the way to Makkah al-Mukarramah. That's uh, a few hundred if not thousand kilometers. And he traveled carrying his mother on his back by foot walking with her to Makkah al-Mukarramah. And then he performed the tawaf of arrival or it could have been an Umrah. And then he walked with her to Mina and from Mina he carried her on his back to Arafah. And from Arafah he carried her on his back to Muzdalifah. And from Muzdalifah back to from Muzdalifah back to Mina to Pelta Jamarat and then he carried her on his back all the way back to the Kaaba while he was performing performing Tawaful Ifadah and if anyone that has not performed the Hajj were to speak to the Hujaj how tiring that journey is even though we're riding on buses even though there's air conditions even though we came with a plane to Saudi Arabia uh, they will tell you that it's one of the most exhausting journeys of a lifetime and even though it's spiritually beneficial and one feels motivated and it's life-changing but it's very exhausting and if you were to imagine that this man was carrying his mother on his back for this entire journey when he meets Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala in front of the Kaaba and Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala he says to this man from Yemen asks Abdullah bin Umar I carried my mother on my back for this entire journey one step at a time do you feel that I have paid her back 
to which Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhu responded saying that that entire journey where you carried your mother on your back from Yemen to Mecca to Mina to Arafat to Muzdalifah to Mina and now back here in front of the Kaaba all that effort does not even equal does not even pay your mother back for one labor pain that she experienced while carrying you in her home and that's we can never pay our mothers back we need to show them the utmost of respect we should be kissing their feet never mind considering cutting ties with them because of something that they've done that i believe was not correct even though she has not even broken the law of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and i hope this gives very clear guidance on this matter Shukran so much the voice there of um, Marina Abdurrahman Khan answering all of your questions in studio this evening. The following question came through says, Assalamu alaikum Marina, is there a dua to get married? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We thank the questioner there uh, for that question and uh, um, there is no as to the best of my knowledge, there is no prophetic dua, a prayer that comes from the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, advising what one a lady or male may recite if they have the intention of getting married. However, we have heard many of our teachers and our mashayikh, uh, especially on more than one occasion, we've heard our teacher said Habib Umar bin Muhammad bin Salim bin Hafiz, advising someone that has asked a very similar question to recite 100 times daily, Rabbi inni lima anzalta ilayya min khayrin faqir. And that is a that is a verse of the Quran that comes in Surah Al-Qasas that translates as Rabbi, O oh my Lord, inni indeed I am for that which you have revealed of good in need. So if you have ordained and revealed, or you have ordained good for me in the form of a spouse, then I am in need of that spouse. And thus a person may recite this uh, this, this, this Quranic supplication 100 times daily with an intention of finding a good partner uh, that will be a source of benefit for you in this world and the next, uh, a spouse. So you may recite daily or she may recite daily. Rabbi inni lima anzalta ilayya min khayrin faqir 100 times and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much Malina. The following question says, Assalamu alaikum Malina. I'm presenter where talaq is concerned. I would like to know if a man gives his wife three talaqs, does that count as one talaq? And if he gives her one talaq, can he break her idah by being intimate with her and then they still married? Can't explain. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. We think that question again for that question and we see this over and over again when we have cases coming to us at the Muslim Judicial Council we find that a man believes that the only way for him to divorce his wife is to say to her I talak you I talak you I talak you or talak tuki talak tuki talak tuki and it's very important for us to understand that that is incorrect and a man when wanting to separate from his wife it's not necessary that he divorces her thrice because when a man pronounces three divorces, it means that his wife will be divorced thrice. And if she is divorced thrice, it means that uh, for the two of them to reconcile and come back together will not be possible until the wife marries another man, consummates the marriage with that other man, and that man eventually, for re- whatever reason, divorces her, her idda expires, only then can her first or previous husband now proposed to her again and thus what we're trying to convey over here is that three talaqs is a very serious matter uh, divorce in itself is serious even for a husband to pronounce one divorce for his wife is a very serious matter 
never mind pronouncing three divorces that make it makes it even more serious uh, one of our teachers explained divorce for you and i to understand it perhaps better he explained divorce to be and i apologize if it's some some may take offense to this example but he said divorce is like three bullets that you have in a gun so once you fire one bullet meaning give one divorce you still have two divorces you can get back together with your wife you can live with her and if you divorce her for a second time it's like you have used a uh, second bullet but once you pronounce divorce for the third time you've used up all three bullets there's no more talaqs that you have left your wife is now no longer halal for you unless she goes through the process of tahleel which was explained in the quran and i just mentioned it that she needs to marry another man consummate the marriage with that mother ma- other man and that man has to divorce her and eventually her ibda needs to expire and only then can she come back to her her first husband uh, and thus uh, answering the question of the questioner today, three divorces according to the, uh, except for an opinion that exists within the Hanbali school, uh, and to what extent it was accepted in the Hanbali school, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone knows, but generally the four schools, the four madhaib are in agreement that if a man pronounces three divorces to his wife, that his wife will be divorced three times and, and not once. Um, regarding the second part of the question, that reads, if he gives her one talaq, can he break her idda by being intimate with her? Uh, the answer to that question is, um, the question is referring to something known as raj'ah. Raj'ah is that when a man has the power to take his wife back as his wife while she is in her waiting idda period. And in the Shafi school, just by sleeping or being intimate with one's wife while she is in the idda waiting period, does not constitute a valid raj'ah, meaning he did not correctly and validly take her back as his wife. She is still in her idda period. She is still a divorcee as such. Uh, in order for a man to take his wife back while she is in her idda period, he needs to say to her that I take you back as my wife. Uh, in Arabic, that would read as raja'atuki. If he does not verbally state that I, I so-and-so take you back as my wife, then that does not constitute a valid uh, raj'ah and the lady will remain in idda and once the idda expires she will be divorced from her husband if anyone wishes to take his her wife back as a wife while she's in the waiting period then he needs to do so verbally stating it very clearly as i explained previously and i hope this brings about clarity for uh, our listeners within our community inshallah ta'ala and allah knows best the following question coming through says assalamu alaikum marina and presenter what is the ruling on a man getting married to a christian woman bismillah rahman rahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in again we thank the questioner for the question um uh, these questions, the one prior to this as well as this question, are things that are very real within our community. And by posing this question, you are granting us an opportunity to shed light and give guidance regarding these matters. Uh, the question I ask, and I'm going to repeat the question again for the benefit of all. Um, Assalamu alaikum, uh, Maulana Sheikh and presenter. What is the ruling on a man getting married to a Christian wife? Um, while Islam permits a Muslim male to get married to a Christian lady or a Jewish lady, one must appreciate that, uh, especially within the Shafi school, the conditions for that to happen are rather stringent. Um, they are the conditions in a nutshell, and I'm going to try my best to convey this as clear as I possibly can. A lady that adopts the that follows the Christian faith or the the Jewish faith 
In order for it to be permissible for a Muslim male to get married to her, she must either be an Israelite. Israel, Israelite meaning that she must come from the offspring of one of the 12 sons of Nabi Yaqub If she is not an Israelite, then her family must have accepted Judaism or Christianity before the abrogation of that religion or before the uh, distortion and interpolation of that religion, the tahrif of that religion. Um, we know that, uh, by way of example, Christianity was abrogated with the advent, with the coming of the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And whole scale uh, tahrif, change, or distortion, or interpolation of the Christian faith happened around the year, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, 370, uh, 370 CE, Christian era. Uh, when the Council of Nasiya took place, where a decision was taken that uh, all uh, monotheists within Christianity uh, that was led by a priest by the name of Arius were to be abandoned and killed, and that Christianity will no longer accept the stream of Christianity that promotes that promotes God is one and only one, and that Nabi Isa والسلام, was a prophet. And their whole scale accepted the Trinitarianism that God is three. And uh, that's when Tahrif took place. So what that essentially means is that if a Muslim wants to get married to a Christian female, it technically means that the female, uh, her family, should have accepted Christianity before the coming of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, which was 570 CE. And not only that, they should have accepted Christianity before whole scale interpolation took place within the Christianity faith which was around 370 CE if they can establish that their family has been Christian from prior to 370 CE only then would it be permissible for a Muslim male to get married to that female Christian female according to the uh, Shafi'i school of thought uh, similarly in Judaism uh, for a start the Jewish lady should be able to establish that her her family accepted Judaism, if she's not an Israelite, that her family accepted Judaism prior to the coming of Nabi Isa alayhi salatu wasalam. And you can already observe that uh, many women, Christian and Jewish females, will not be able to establish these meanings and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Then further, if it is that a lady does meet these criterion, or somebody wishes to adopt a view outside of the Shafi Madhab that is a bit more lenient in getting married to Jewish and Christian females, then they should keep in mind that uh, as a as a as a rule from the Muslim Judicial Judicial Council, based on the fact that most marriages where Muslims would get married to a Christian or Jewish female, those marriages tend not to be successful, and in more most of the cases they tend to be many many challenges when it comes to the children and many a times we find and these are real realities these are actual realities that we observe while sitting uh, in the sharia court at the muslim judicial council is that many a times a father would separate from a wife that was christian and in the process he would lose five children six children and they would automatically not adopt the faith of the father and this is something which is very difficult and very challenging and for this reason as a rule uh, scholars associated with the MJC would usually in most cases not perform marriages where a uh, Muslim male wishes to get married to a Christian or Jewish lady uh, because of the repercussion and because of the negative impact that we observed 
within our communities and societies. So that's a lot of uh, information that has been given and some food for thought. If any person out there has an intention to get married to a non-Muslim female, then he should strive. If it is that his heart is such and so attached to her, he should know that his attachment to Deen is more important than anything under the sun, more important than himself, and he should strive to invite her to accept and embrace Islam, uh, and that would make things so much easier uh, for him. And of course, once she embraces Islam, he needs to be a teacher for her and a role model for her and ensure that she learns the 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 the, the basics of her religion, of the new religion, Islam, and that she learns to recite the Quran, and he needs to play a very pivotal role in ensuring that iman becomes established within her, within her heart, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much, Malina. The following question coming through says, Assalamu alaikum, Malina, I'm presenter. What is the ruling on women wearing a wig or implants if she, sh- if she suffers from hair loss and is becoming bald due to illness? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa sallallahu alayhi Sayyidina Muhammad wa alayhi wa sahbihi ajma'een The wearing of a wig in the modern world would take many different forms uh, The hadith that spoke about something similar to a wig which was basically hair extensions The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam He took a very strict stance against that and he said in a hadith that was transmitted from him authentically That may Allah curse the one that uh, extends the hair A lady who extends the hair and the lady who uh, extends the hair for that lady, the wasila and the mustawsila. Um, and when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when a Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa curses somebody, then that means that that particular action is, is haram. And thus, uh, um, the scholars, when discussing the wig, however, did not necessarily consider, consider the wig to be wasal, wasal, which means now hair extensions as such. And also, the wig wouldn't be a hair extension as such, number one. Number two is, when coming to actual hair extension, the scholars, they said that what the hadith refers to is that if a person was to extend hair using an impure material, number one, or using human hair, then that would be haram. No, they consider that to be haram, um, even though there was one position that stated it to be makru. Uh, what is however permissible, if a lady was to use a material that is synthetic and not the hair of another human being, then the correct opinion among the Shafi scholars were that such hair extension will be permissible if the lady is married and her husband gives her permission to, to do so. Uh, so if I am able to sum that up very briefly, hair extensions with human hair or impure hair is haram. Uh, however, hair extension with um, synthetic hair or non-human hair or hair that is not uh, impure will be permissible if a lady is married and her husband gives her permission to do so. Um, the wig, however, is not hair extension. And the wig is a, is a set of hair that a lady will wear over her hair and not extending it to her hair or attaching it to her hair in any way. Um, even though some of the modern wigs would mean that she may glue it onto her, onto her scalp. Um, so the wig is something that uh, uh, accordingly would be permissible 
if hair extensions are going to be permissible, then placing a covering over the head, especially in the Maliki school, they considered a wig just to be placing something on the head like a hat. So the wearing of a wig would be would be permissible. However, the scholars they spoke about if a lady is covering her hair with a wig, is she allowed to go outside in the public in that manner since her original hair is covered? And they said no, even for her to wear a wig outside, which is not her real hair and her real hair is actually being covered, it will still be haram for her to for a strange man to see her like that because that would be part of her zina, her adornment and beauty that Allah prohibited her in the Quran to expose or to show uh, in front of strange men or in the in the public space. Uh, and in short, this is our discussion regarding the wig. I'll sum, summarize that again. For a lady to wear a wig would be permissible if the wig is um, doesn't contain human hair, if the wig is doesn't contain impure hair, if the hair on the wig is pure, then it would be permissible for a lady to wear such a wig uh, for the sake of her husband. But she may, if she goes outside, it would be required that she still covers the hair on the wig with a scarf or the, or the like. Uh, also, uh, she should be very careful that when performing hudu or ghusl, that one cannot be wearing a wig while doing so, because one needs to ensure when performing hudu and ghusl that at least part of the forehead is wiped when performing hudu and the entire head including the uh, the scalp has to be washed while performing ghusl if all of these can be kept in mind and can be abided to then there should be no problem for her to wear a wig and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best shukran so much Malina the following question says Aslamu alaikum Malina I have three children two of which is boys and one which is a girl is it okay for me to make my only daughter the executor of my house or does this responsibility fall on the eldest son kindly advise Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala ali wa sahbihi ajma'in um, the idea of placing an executor on your will, the executor of the will doesn't really do much. And the real executor is actually the lawyer that will be uh, doing all the necessary and required paperwork and eventually the distribution of the estate. Um, uh, that being said, um, the executor in reality, when I sign someone off as executor on my will, that executor, the only role that they play is to approach the lawyer to advise the lawyer that so and so has passed on to show them the will of the of the deceased and the rest will be dealt with by the lawyer the executor has a very uh, uh, very small if any role at all to be playing when it comes to the estate and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best of course the executor will have the right to take a decision what lawyer to send the will to um, so there is some role after all however all of this would be uh, a something which is very similar to appointment or wakala. And uh, when appointing someone as an agent to do a business dealing for me or to do a business transaction for me or to sell my house or to purchase my house, scholars don't draw a distinction between males and females. I can appoint a female uh, estate agent to sell my house for me and there's no problem therein. So similarly, if the parent wishes to appoint a daughter as an executor, meaning someone that will be acting as an agent, as a wakil, 
to approach and take the matter further with the lawyer. I cannot see any problem with that and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much Malina. The following question coming through via SMS 47913 is the number in which you want to get your questions answered. That is where the number in which you need to send it through. The following says Assalamu alaikum. Malina, I'm presenter of All Is One in Studio. Malina, what is my right towards my siblings as the eldest brother to my siblings? Is it my responsibility to take care of my sisters if they are working but not married yet? And what if they are married? Should I still take care of them? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Muhammad wa ala wa um, the I'm going to I'm going to discuss this question slightly broader than than the actual question, and that is the responsibility of communities towards women folk. Um, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's impossible for you and I to imagine that Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam that Allah would reveal a religion to Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam where any member of society is going to be wronged. Uh, there's a lot of discussion around gender-based violence happening within our community these days and this may be an excellent platform for you and I to establish how Islam take, takes care of women and that how women are honored and that the Western lifestyle that requires and makes a woman feel almost obligated to go out and earn a living and to fend for herself and to sometimes assist the husband in putting food on the table and covering the rent. That is one of the great forms of oppression that has been placed with upon women. A lady with an Islamic state in an Islamic world, an Islamic environment, is honored, is respected. She's treated as a queen when she's a mother. Jannah lies beneath her feet when she's a sister, rather when she's a daughter. The Prophet said that whoever takes care of three, two or one daughters and give them a proper upbringing, there will be a means for that man to enter paradise. And thus women folk throughout their lives, they are constantly uh, dealt with, with, with care. When she's a wife, our Prophet told us that your wives are uh, are trust, are entrusted to you by Allah and thus they are trust. And if I do not deal correctly with my wife, I am breaking a trust that I have taken with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah will hold me accountable for that. So human folk are always protected. Human folk are always uh, always supposed to be looked after. When a lady is a divorcee or a widow within a community, the Prophet sallallahu encouraged men to show support, financial support and care. So he said, The one who strives to put food on the table or to support financially a widow and one may add to that a divorcee is like one that is striving in the way of Allah another narration the Prophet said is like one that is fasting all day and that's the Prophet ensured that women are taken care of uh, the actual question here is that the elder brother is it his responsibility to take care of a sister uh, of his sibling one of, one of his sisters and then he said this, if the sister is if they are working but not married yet. And what if they are married, should I still take care of them? So the general rule is that um, a child, rather a sister, a sibling, if he or she is working and they are able to take care of the financial needs by themselves, then of course um, um, it will no longer be the responsibility of the mother and father to take care of the child, as how it will no longer be the responsibility of any of the other siblings to take care of someone that is earning their own monies. However, uh, if that sister decides not to work for whatever reason, and she now requires somebody to take care and support of her, uh, then the mother and father needs to show her support, financial support. Um, a son, however, that is capable of working 
and decides not to work expecting that his father should take care of him, it will not be an obligation upon the father to take care of such a of such a son, but such a daughter needs to be taken care of because a daughter should never be made to feel obligated to go and earn a, a living for herself. Um, that's one point. The next point now is that the siblings. Um, the Shafi school does not consider it the siblings, the brothers' responsibility to take care of, of sisters in one opinion that exists within the Shafi school. However, an opinion that I feel much more comfortable with is that of the Hanafi madhab that says it is as how it's the father's financial responsibility to take care of daughters. Similarly, it's the financial responsibility of brothers to take care of the financial needs of, of sisters. And therefore, my advice to this brother is that if you have, or any elder, any brother there, and it's not the duty of the elder brother, all brothers, whether it's the youngest brother or whether it's the oldest brother, if you have a sister that is struggling and a sister that does not have financial income, then it's your responsibility to take care of her, it's your responsibility to put a roof over her head, it's your responsibility to put food on, on her table. Uh, this is something that I feel very strong about in light of the general ethos of the Sharia that emphasizes the, the, the need to take care of sisters, brothers that are not doing so, in the opinion of this uh, weak individual, is doing a great injustice towards their sister and may be answerable for that in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and I hope that this answers the question clearly and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. The following question coming through says, Assalamu alaikum, Marina, I'm presenter. What is the ruling on a man getting married to a Christian woman? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Uh, again, we thank the questioner for the question. Um, uh, these questions, the one prior to this as well as this question, are things that are very real within our community. And by posing this question, you are granting us an opportunity to shed light and give guidance regarding these matters. Uh, the question I ask, and I'm going to repeat the question again for the benefit of all. Um, Assalamu alaikum, uh, Maulana Sheikh and presenter. What is the ruling on a man getting married to a Christian wife? Um, while Islam permits a Muslim male to get married to a Christian lady or a Jewish lady, one must appreciate that uh, especially within the Shafi school, the conditions for that to happen are rather stringent. Um, they are the conditions in a nutshell, and I'm going to try my best to convey this as clear as I possibly can. A lady that adopts the, that follows the Christian faith or the, the Jewish faith, in order for it to be permissible for a Muslim male to get married to her, she must either be an Israelite. Israel, Israelite meaning that she must come from the offspring of one of the twelve sons of Nabi Yaqub alayhi salatu wasalam. If she is not an Israelite, then her family must have accepted Judaism or Christianity before the abrogation of that religion or before the uh, distortion and interpolation of that religion, the tahrif of that religion. Um, we know that, uh, by way of example, Christianity was abrogated with the advent, with the coming of the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and whole-scale uh, tahrif change or distortion or interpolation of the Christian faith happened around the year, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, three seventy, uh, three seventy C.E. Christian era. Uh, when the Council of Nasiya took place, where a decision was taken that uh, all uh, monotheists within Christianity, 
that was led by a priest by the name of Arius were to be abandoned and killed and that Christianity will no longer accept the stream of Christianity that promotes that promotes God is one and only one and that Nabi Isa was a prophet and the whole scale accepted the Trinitarianism that God is three and uh, that's when Tahrif took place so what that essentially means is that if a Muslim wants to get married to a Christian female it technically means that the female uh, her family should have accepted Christianity before the coming of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam which was 570 CE and not only that they should have accepted Christianity before whole scale interpolation took place within the Christianity faith which was around 370 CE if they can establish that their family has been Christian from prior to 370 CE only then would it be permissible for a Muslim male to get married to that female Christian female according to the uh, Shafi school of thought uh, similarly in Judaism uh, for a start the Jewish lady should be able to establish that her her family accepted Judaism, if she's not an Israelite, that her family accepted Judaism prior to the coming of Nabi Isa alayhi salatu wasalam. And you can already observe that uh, many women, Christian and Jewish females will not be able to establish these meanings and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Then further, if it is that a lady does meet these criterion or somebody wishes to adopt a view outside of the Shafi Madhab that is a bit more lenient in getting married to Jewish and Christian females, then they should keep in mind that uh, as a as a as a rule from the Muslim Judicial Judicial Council, based on the fact that most marriages where Muslims would get married to a Christian or Jewish female, those marriages tend not to be successful, and in more most of the cases they tend to be many many challenges when it comes to the children and many a times we find and these are real realities these are actual realities that we observe while sitting uh, in the sharia court at the muslim judicial council is that many a times a father would separate from a wife that was christian and in the process he would lose five children six children and they would automatically not adopt the faith of the father and this is something which is very difficult and very challenging and for this reason as a rule uh, scholars associated with the MJC would usually in most cases not perform marriages where a uh, Muslim male wishes to get married to a Christian or Jewish lady uh, because of the repercussion and because of the negative impact that we observed within our communities and societies. So that's a lot of uh, information that has been given and some food for thought. If any person out there has an intention to get married to a non-Muslim female, then he should strive. If it is that his heart is such a, so attached to her, he should know that his attachment to Dean is more important than anything under the sun, more important than himself. And he should strive to invite her to accept and embrace Islam. Uh, and that would make things so much easier uh, for him and of course, once she embraces Islam, he needs to be a teacher for her and a role model for her and ensure that she learns the 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 the, the basics of her religion, of the new religion Islam, and that she learns to recite the Quran and he needs to play a very pivotal role in ensuring that Iman becomes established within her, within her heart and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much, Malina. The following question coming through says, Assalamu alaikum, Malina. I'm presenter. What is the ruling on women wearing a wig or implants if she if she suffers from hair loss and is becoming bald due to illness? 
Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, the wearing of a wig in the modern world would take many different forms. Uh, the hadith that spoke about something similar to a wig, which was basically hair extensions. The Prophet ﷺ, he took a very strict stance against that and he said in a hadith that was transmitted from him authentically that may Allah curse the one that uh, extends the hair, a lady who extends the hair, and the lady who uh, extends the hair for that lady, the wasila and the mustawsila. Um, and when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when a Prophet sallallahu curses somebody, then that means that that particular action is, is haram. And thus, uh, um, the scholars, when discussing the wig, however, did not necessarily consider, consider the wig to be wasal. Wasal, which means now, hair extensions as such. And also, the wig wouldn't be a hair extension as such, number one. Number two is, when coming to actual hair extension, the scholars, they said that, what the hadith refers to is that if a person was to extend hair using an impure material, number one, or using human hair, then that would be haram. No, they consider that to be haram, um, even though there was one position that stated it to be makru. Uh, what is, however, permissible, if a lady was to use a material that is synthetic and not the hair of another human being, then the correct opinion among the Shafi'i scholars were that such hair extension will be permissible if the lady is married and her husband gives her permission to, to do so. Uh, so if I am able to sum that up very briefly, hair extensions with human hair or impure hair is haram. Uh, however, hair extension with um, synthetic hair or non-human hair or hair that is not uh, impure, will be permissible if a lady is married and a husband gives her permission to do so. Um, the wig, however, is not hair extension. And the wig is a, is a set of hair that a lady will wear over her hair and not extending it to her hair or attaching it to her hair in any way. Um, even though some of the modern wigs would mean that she may glue it onto her, onto her scalp. Um, so the wig is something that uh, uh, accordingly would be permissible. If hair extensions are going to be permissible, then placing a covering over the head, especially in the Maliki school, they considered a wig just to be placing something on the head like a hat. So the wearing of a wig would be would be permissible. However, the scholars, they spoke about if a lady is covering her hair with a wig, is she allowed to go outside in the public in that manner since her original hair is covered? And they said no, even for her to wear a wig outside, which is not her real hair and her real hair is actually being covered, it will still be haram for her to for a strange man to see her like that because that would be part of her zina, her adornment and beauty that Allah prohibited her in the Quran to expose or to show uh, in front of strange men or in the, in the public space. Uh, and in short, this is our discussion regarding the wig. I'll sum, summarize it again. For a lady to wear a wig would be permissible if the wig is um, doesn't contain human hair, if the wig is doesn't contain impure hair, if the hair on the wig is pure, then it would be permissible for a lady to wear such a wig uh, for the sake of her husband. But she may, if she goes outside, it would be required that she still covers the hair on the wig with a scarf or the, or the like. Uh, also, uh, she should be very careful that when performing hudu or ghusl, that one cannot be wearing a wig while doing so because one needs to ensure when performing hudu and ghusl that at least part of the forehead is wiped when performing hudu and the entire head including the 
the scalp has to be washed while performing ghusl. If all of these can be kept in mind and can be abided to, then there should be no problem for her to wear a wig and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much, Malina. The following question says, Assalamu alaikum, Malina. I have three children, two of which is boys and one which is a girl. Is it okay for me to make my only daughter the executor of my house or does this responsibility fall on the eldest son? Kindly advise. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, the idea of placing an executor on your will, the executor of the will doesn't really do much. And the real executor is actually the lawyer that will be uh, doing all the necessary and required paperwork and eventually the distribution of the estate. Um, uh, that being said, um, the executor in reality, when I sign someone off as executor on my will, that executor, the only role that they play is to approach the lawyer, to advise the lawyer that so-and-so has passed on, to show them the will of the of the deceased, and the rest will be dealt with by the lawyer. The executor has a very, uh, uh, very small, if any, role at all to be playing when it comes to the estate and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Of course, the executor will have the right to take a decision what lawyer to send the will to. Um, so there is some role after all. However, all of this would be uh, a something which is very similar to appointment or wakala. And uh, when appointing someone as an agent to do a business dealing for me or to do a business transaction for me or to sell my house or to purchase my house, scholars don't draw a distinction between males and females. I can appoint a female uh, estate agent to sell my house for me and there's no problem therein. So similarly, if the parent wishes to appoint a daughter as an executor, meaning someone that will be acting as an agent, as a wakil, to approach and to take the matter further with the lawyer. I cannot see any problem with that, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much, Malina. The following question coming through via SMS 47913 is the number in which you want to get your questions answered. That is where the number in which you need to send it through. The following says, Assalamu alaikum, Malina, I'm presenter of All Is Well in Studio. Malina, what is my right towards my siblings as the eldest brother to my siblings? Is it my responsibility to take care of my sisters if they are working but not married yet? And what if they are married? Should I still take care of them. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad wa ala wa sahbi. Ajma'in. Um, the um, I'm going to I'm going to discuss this question slightly broader than than the actual question, and that is the responsibility of communities towards human folk. Um, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's impossible for you and I to imagine that Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that Allah would reveal a religion to Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam where any member of society is going to be wronged. Uh, there's a lot of discussion around gender-based violence happening within our community these days, and this may be an excellent platform for you and I to establish how Islam take, takes care of women and that how women are honored, and that the Western lifestyle that requires and makes a woman feel almost obligated to go out and earn a living and to fend for herself and to sometimes assist her husband in putting food on the table and covering the rent. That is one of the great forms of oppression that has been placed with upon women. A lady with an Islamic state in an Islamic world, an Islamic environment, is honored, is respected. She's treated as a queen when she's a mother. Jannah lies beneath her feet when she's a sister, rather when she's a daughter. The Prophet ﷺ said that whoever takes care of three, two or one daughters and give them a proper upbringing, they will be a means.
means for that man to enter paradise. And thus, women folk throughout their lives, they are constantly uh, dealt with, with, with care. When she's a wife, our Prophet ﷺ told us that your wives are, uh, are trust, are entrusted to you by Allah, and thus they are trust. And if I do not deal correctly with my wife, I am breaking a trust that I have taken with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah will hold me accountable for that. So human folk are always protected. Human folk are always, uh, always supposed to be looked after. When a lady is a divorcee or a widow within a community, the Prophet sallallahu encouraged men to show support, financial support and care. So he said, As-sa'i al-armalati wal-miskeen, the one who strives to put food on the table or to support financially a widow, and one may add to that a divorcee, Kal-mujahid fi sabirillah is like one that is striving in the way of Allah. Another narration the Prophet said is like one that is fasting all day. And that's the Prophet wasallam ensured that women are taken care of. Uh, the actual question here is that the elder brother, is it his responsibility to take care of a sister, uh, of his sibling, one of, one of his sisters? And then he said, this, if the sister is, if they are working but not married yet. And what if they are married, should I still take care of them? So the general rule is that um, a child, rather a sister, a sibling, if he or she is working and they are able to take care of the financial needs by themselves, then of course um, um, it will no longer be the responsibility of the mother and father to take care of the child, as how it will no longer be the responsibility of any of the other siblings to take care of someone that is earning their own monies. However, uh, if that sister decides not to work for whatever reason, and she now requires somebody to take care and support of her, uh, then the mother and father needs to show her support, financial support. Um, a son, however, that is capable of working and decides not to work, expecting that his father should take care of him, it will not be an obligation upon the father to take care of such a of such a son, but such a daughter needs to be taken care of because a daughter should never be made to feel obligated to go and earn it. A living for herself. Um, that's one point. The next point now is that the siblings. Um, the Shafi school does not consider it the siblings, the brothers' responsibility to take care of, of sisters in one opinion that exists within the Shafi school. However, an opinion that I feel much more comfortable with is that of the Hanafi madhab that says it is as how it's the father's financial responsibility to take care of daughters. Similarly, it's the financial responsibility of brothers to take care of the financial needs of, of sisters. And therefore, my advice to this brother is that if you have or any elder, any brother there, and it's not the duty of the elder brother, all brothers, whether it's the youngest brother or whether it's the oldest brother, if you have a sister that is struggling and a sister that does not have financial income, then it's your responsibility to take care of her, it's your responsibility to put a roof over her head, it's your responsibility to put food on, on her table. Uh, this is something that I feel very strong about in light of the general ethos of the Sharia that emphasizes the, the, the need to take care of sisters, brothers that are not doing so, in the opinion of this uh, weak individual, is doing a great injustice towards their sister and may be answerable for that in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and I hope that this answers the question clearly and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. The following question came through says, Assalamu alaikum Mawlana, is there a dua to get married? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. We thank the questioner there uh, for that question and uh, 
Um, there is no, as to the best of my knowledge, there is no prophetic dua, a prayer that comes from the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, advising what one a lady or male may recite if they have the intention of getting married. However, we have heard many of our teachers and our mashayikh, uh, especially on more than one occasion, we've heard our teacher said Habib Umar bin Muhammad bin Salim bin Hafiz advising someone that has asked a very similar question to recite 100 times daily, Rabbi inni lima anzalta ilayya min khayrin faqir. And that is a that is a verse of the Quran that comes in Surah Al-Qasas that translates as Rabbi, oh my Lord, inni indeed I am for that which you have revealed of good in need. So if you have ordained and revealed or you have ordained good for me in the form of a spouse, then I am in need of that spouse. And thus a person may recite this, uh, this, this, this Quranic supplication 100 times daily with an intention of finding a good partner uh, that will be a source of benefit for you in this world and the next uh, a spouse. So you may recite daily or she may recite daily. Rabbi inni lima anzalta ilayya min khayrin faqir 100 times and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much Malana. The following question says, Assalamu alaikum Malana, I'm presenter. Where talaq is concerned, I would like to know if a man gives his wife three talaqs, does that count as one talaq? And if he gives her one talaq, can he break her idda by being intimate with her and then they still married? Can't explain. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. We think that question again for that question and we see this over and over again when we have cases coming to us at the Muslim Judicial Council we find that a man believes that the only way for him to divorce his wife is to say to her I talak you I talak you I talak you or talak tuki talak tuki talak tuki and it's very important for us to understand that that is incorrect and a man when wanting to separate from his wife it's not necessary that he divorces her thrice because when a man pronounces three divorces, it means that his wife will be divorced thrice. And if she is divorced thrice, it means that uh, for the two of them to reconcile and come back together will not be possible until the wife marries another man, consummates the marriage with that other man, and that man eventually, for re- whatever reason, divorces her, her idda expires, only then can her first or previous husband now proposed to her again. And thus, what we're trying to convey over here is that three talaqs is a very serious matter. Uh, divorce in itself is serious. Even for a husband to pronounce one divorce for his wife is a very serious matter. Never mind pronouncing three divorces that make it, makes it even more serious. Uh, one of our teachers explained divorce for you and I to understand it perhaps better. He explained divorce to be, and I apologize if it's, some, some may take offense to this example, but he said divorce is like three bullets that you have in a gun. So once you fire one bullet, meaning give one divorce, you still have two divorces. You can get back together with your wife. You can live with her. And if you divorce her for a second time, it's like you have used a, a second bullet. But once you pronounce divorce for the third time, you've used up all three bullets, there's no more talaqs that you have left, your wife is now no longer halal for you, unless she goes through the process of tahleel, which was explained in the Quran, and I just mentioned it, that she needs to marry another man, consummate the marriage with that other man, and that man has to divorce her, and eventually her idda needs to expire, and only then can she come back to her, her first husband. Uh, and thus, uh, answering the question of the questioner today, three divorces, according to the, uh, except for an opinion that exists within the Hanbali school, 
uh, and to what extent it was accepted in the Hanbali school, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone knows. But generally, the four schools, the four madhaib are in agreement that if a man pronounces three divorces to his wife, that his wife will be divorced three times and, and not once. Um, regarding the second part of the question, that reads, if he gives her one talaq, can he break her idda by being intimate with her? Uh, the answer to that question is, um, the question is referring to something known as raja'ah. Raja'ah is that when a man has the power to take his wife back as his wife while she is in her waiting idda period. And in the Shafi school, just by sleeping or being intimate with one's wife while she is in the idda waiting period, does not constitute a valid raja'ah, meaning he did not correctly and validly take her back as his wife. She is still in her idda period. She is still a divorcee as such. Uh, in order for a man to take his wife back while she is in her idda period, he needs to say to her that I take you back as my wife. Uh, in Arabic, that would read as raja'atuki. If he does not verbally state that I, I so-and-so take you back as my wife, then that does not constitute a valid uh, raj'ah and the lady will remain in idda and once the idda expires she will be divorced from her husband if anyone wishes to take his her wife back as a wife while she's in the waiting period then he needs to do so verbally stating it very clearly as i explained previously and i hope this brings about clarity for uh, our listeners within our community inshallah tabaraka wa ta'ala and allah knows best the following question says assalamu alaikum malina i am the baby son and i have been married for one year now how do i strike the balance between my wife and my mother because my wife feels that i am spending all the time with my mother if i'm not working i'm still with my mother is my mother still my responsibility i'm married now and have my family of my own bismillah rahman rahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in um, we thank our brother for this question. Um, our mothers would all, will always be our responsibility. Uh, the way the question is presented somehow creates the impression that uh, the brother's father may not be around any longer because he speaks about responsibility and usually with responsibility we take an understanding of a financial responsibility. Once a uh, mother or father for that matter reaches a point or age in their life where they can no longer, they do not have money and they do not have a source of income, uh, it becomes the responsibility of a children, of the children by agreement to take care of the parents. Like a father or a mother needs to spend on children while they are young, when the child starts earning and the father and mother can no longer take care of themselves, it becomes the children's responsibility to take care of the parents, even the father. If a father that is reached old age and he has no longer an income and no longer monies, even if that father wants to get married, children needs to come up with funding for the mahar for his marriage. And if he gets married, children need to support him in spending on his wife. And this is one of the areas within our community that uh, we have become very negligent of. It's as if uh, uh, children never sit down by themselves saying that, you know, our parents no longer have an income. It's now our responsibility to make nafaqa, to pay maintenance of our parents, ensuring that they have a roof over their head, ensuring that they have lights in their home, ensuring that they have food on their table. If my father gets married, ensuring that he has money to spend on that wife, and so forth and so on. Uh, so if it is a financial responsibility that our brother may be making reference to, then definitely you will continue having that responsibility over your mother uh, until... The day he, she or you leave this world, may Allah grant you both a, a long life. Um, however, 
the question here seems more to be a matter of time and uh, it's very important that you are able to uh, balance yourself when it comes to spending time with your wife and spending time with you with your mother and uh, uh, um, there's no set standard how often one should visit his mother and how much time one should be spending with his mother. Uh, uh, a general rule would be that spend enough time with your mother as long as you are able to spend uh, a, a, a similar amount of time or more time even with your wife such that there are no complications coming about within your relationship. Otherwise, if there are complications coming about, then you and your wife will need to sit down and discuss terms. What would be an acceptable amount of time of your free time? What would be an acceptable amount of time for you to be spending, to be spending with your mother? I don't believe it would, it, it's correct or accurate to be pointing a finger at your wife if your wife feels that you're spending maybe more time with your mother than what you are spending with her. After all, she also has a right over you. And our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said that very clearly in a number of hadiths saying that what is alayka haqqa, your spouse has a, has a right over you. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam himself used to spend time with his wives despite his busy schedule, despite his uh, responsibility that he held towards humanity. Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam almost every night would spend time with his wives, sitting with them, discussing things with them. And sometimes the topic of discussion used to be such topics that you and I may consider to be futile or even a waste of time. But Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sat and he listened to stories coming from Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha and other wives of his and thus uh, i don't believe that one could consider your wife to be unnecessary over here she may be very well within a right to request that you uh, spend more time with her uh, the important thing is for you to sit down and come to an agreement with your wife uh, the best of course is if you're able to visit your mother every day then that is good if you every day is not possible then every second every second day every third day but i don't believe as a as an individual I don't believe, even though I cannot attach any legal ruling to this, uh, I don't believe it to be. I don't believe it to be correct that a week goes by without children going to visit and spend some time, spending some time with the with the parents and Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala knows best. So there's no clear guidelines exactly what is wrong and what is right. Uh, mothers, parents must be taken care of. They need to be showed affection and love. We need to visit them. We need to buy them gifts. Um, it's important that you and your wife sit down and come to. Uh, acceptable terms how much time you could be spending with your mother and how much time you time you are able to to spend with her in such a way that everyone is happy but for you just to go about doing what you want as how you see fit without consulting without speaking this may be the reason that you find yourself in a challenging or complicated situation and allah knows best shukran so much marina the following question says assalamu alaikum marina i'm presenter my toilet is completely separate from my bathroom can one play instrumental music in the bathroom while taking a bath or does the bathroom have the same principle as the toilet just do what you have to and then do and then exit bismillah rahman rahim um there's a number of Questions within this question and the first one would be what exactly constitutes toilet and what would constitute a a bathroom uh, I've heard one of our seniors saying once and I haven't seen this written in any fiqh book as such But in a space we that in a, in a in a small space that consists of both a toilet and a bathroom So an area where you would perform hudu or an area where you would perform a take a bath or a shower And in that same space you find that there is a toilet they said that that space becomes what you intend when entering uh, like i said that uh, i will have to research this question further 
but this piece of advice sounded sound and I that feel that I I feel comfortable sharing with it that the space becomes if I enter and my intention is to perform hudu and to stay away from the toilet, the usage of the toilet as such, then that space is treated as a bathroom and not a toilet. But if I enter with an intention of using the toilet, the space thus becomes treated as a as a toilet. The Prophet ﷺ, by way of example, with this discussion came about was, uh, he taught us to recite the du'a when entering the lavatory and when leaving the lavatory. Many a times the Prophet ﷺ and his companions would use, uh, would leave themselves outdoors, outside, and they would still make these prayers. So, a space in their mind that they identified as a space where they're going to be relieving themselves, they would enter with the left foot. And when they would leave that space, they would leave it with the right foot. A space that is identified within their minds, and that's reciting the prayer when entering and leaving the lavatory. Uh, similarly, if you take that reasoning and you say a person is entering the bathroom, but he's going to brush his teeth and he has no intention of using the toilet, does he make the dua, yes or no? Right, so to him at that point in time, when he's entering with an intention to brush his teeth, then they are not technically entering the toilet. And this was the reasoning that we heard from one of the scholars. Even though I must say that this is something that uh, I will have to uh, double check, and it's something that we will need to verify with our books of fiqh. Um, that being said, uh, just a discussion around the differentiation between a the toilet, a place where you're going to relieve yourself, and a bathroom where you would be uh, washing and brushing teeth and performing wudu and so forth and so on. Uh, however, the idea of where can music be played and where music cannot be played, uh, I feel that to be irrelevant, whether it's a toilet, whether it's a bathroom. The question is not whether I could play music or not. The question is that, uh, is instrumental music permissible or is it not permissible? If it is permissible, then... Um, it would be allowed to play it whether it's a bathroom or a toilet as long as um, the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not being taken, the name of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu is not being taken, uh, verses of the Quran are not being quoted, um, things that are impermissible for you to carry with you inside of the, inside of the, the toilet. Um, so that's if you consider instrumental music to be permissible and if you adopt the position of the majority of scholars that considers instrumental music to be impermissible then even outside of the bathroom it wouldn't be permissible for you to play and listen to it so i don't believe this question is really one whether i can play it inside or not the question is is it permissible is it not permissible if you adopt the view saying it's impermissible then it's impermissible inside and outside the bathroom if it is if you adopt a permission that said it's permissible, then it doesn't really matter whether it's a toilet or whether it's a bathroom. Uh, one would be allowed to play, but one needs to be very careful that uh, there's no word or content in that, uh, in that, uh, in the lyrics that may be making reference to Allah subhanahu wa taala or Prophet of Allah subhanahu wa taala as taking then the names of Allah and His Prophet sallallahu in a place such as a Bathroom or lavatory is generally undesired and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. The following question coming through says, Assalamu alaikum, Marina and presenter. What is the ruling on a man getting married to a Christian woman? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Uh, again, we thank the questioner for the question. Um, uh, these questions, the one prior to this as well as this question, are things that are very real within our community. And by posing this question, you are granting us an opportunity to shed light and give guidance regarding these matters. Uh, the question I ask, and I'm going to repeat the question again for the benefit of all. Um, Assalamu alaikum 
Maulana Sheikh and presenter, what is the ruling on a man getting married to a Christian wife? Um, while Islam permits a Muslim male to get married to a Christian lady or a Jewish lady, one must appreciate that uh, especially within the Shafi school, the conditions for that to happen are rather stringent. Um, they are the conditions in a nutshell, and I'm going to try my best to convey this as clear as I possibly can. A lady that adopts the, that follows the Christian faith or the, the Jewish faith, in order for it to be permissible for a Muslim male to get married to her, she must either be an Israelite. Israel, Israelite meaning that she must come from the offspring of one of the 12 sons of Nabi Yaqub, if she is not an Israelite, then her family must have accepted Judaism or Christianity before the abrogation of that religion or before the uh, distortion and interpolation of that religion, the tahrif of that religion. Um, we know that, uh, by way of example, Christianity was abrogated with the advent, with the coming of the Messenger Muhammad wasallam, And whole-scale uh, tahrif, change or distortion or interpolation of the Christian faith happened around the year, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, 370, uh, 370 CE, Christian era, uh, when the Council of Nicaea took place, where a decision was taken that uh, all uh, monotheists within Christianity uh, that was led by a priest by the name of Arius what to be abandoned and killed, and that Christianity will no longer accept the stream of Christianity that promotes that promotes God is one and only one, and that Nabi Isa wasalam, was a prophet, and their whole scale accepted the Trinitarianism that God is three, and uh, that's when Tahrif took place. So what that essentially means is that if a Muslim wants to get married to a Christian female, it technically means that the female uh, her family should have accepted Christianity before the coming of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam which was 570 CE and not only that they should have accepted Christianity before whole scale interpolation took place within the Christianity faith which was around 370 CE if they can establish that their family has been Christian from prior to 370 CE only then would it be permissible for a Muslim male to get married to that female Christian female according to the uh, Shafi school of thought uh, similarly in Judaism uh, for a start the Jewish lady should be able to establish that her her family accepted Judaism, if she's not an Israelite, that her family accepted Judaism prior to the coming of Nabi Isa alayhi salatu wasalam. And you can already observe that uh, many women, Christian and Jewish females, will not be able to establish these meanings and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Then further, if it is that a lady does meet these criteria, or somebody wishes to adopt a view outside of the Shafi Madhab that is a bit more lenient in getting married to Jewish and Christian females, then they should keep in mind that uh, as a as a as a rule from the Muslim Judicial Judicial Council, based on the fact that most marriages where Muslims would get married to a Christian or Jewish female, those marriages tend not to be successful, and in more most of the cases they tend to be many many challenges when it comes to the children and many a times we find and these are real realities these are actual realities that we observe while sitting 
uh, in the Sharia court at the Muslim Judicial Council is that many a times a father would separate from a wife that was Christian and in the process he would lose five children, six children and they would automatically not adopt the faith of the father and this is something which is very difficult and very challenging and for this reason as a rule uh, scholars associated with the MJC would usually in most cases not perform marriages where a uh, Muslim male wishes to get married to a Christian or Jewish lady uh, because of the repercussion and because of the negative impact that we observed within our communities and societies. So that's a lot of uh, information that has been given and some food for thought. If any person out there has an intention to get married to a non-Muslim female, then he should strive. If it is that his heart is such a, so attached to her, he should know that his attachment to Dean is more important than anything under the sun, more important than himself, and he should strive to invite her to accept and embrace Islam. Uh, and that would make things so much easier uh, for him and of course, once she embraces Islam, he needs to be a teacher for her and a role model for her and ensure that she learns the the the, the, the basics of her religion, of the new religion, Islam, and that she learns to recite the Quran. And he needs to play a very pivotal role in ensuring that Iman becomes established within her, within her heart. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much, Malina. The following question coming through says, Assalamu alaikum, Malina. I'm presenter. What is the ruling on women wearing a wig or implants if she, sh- if she suffers from hair loss and is becoming bald due to illness? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, the wearing of a wig in the modern world would take many different forms. Uh, the hadith that spoke about something similar to a wig, which was basically hair extensions, the Prophet ﷺ, he took a very strict stance against that and he said in a hadith that was transmitted from him authentically, that may Allah curse the one that uh, extends the hair, a lady who extends the hair, and the lady who uh, extends the hair for that lady, the wasila and the mustawsila. Um and when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when a Prophet sallallahu curses somebody, then that means that that particular action is, is haram. And thus, uh, um, the scholars, when discussing the wig, however, did not necessarily consider, consider the wig to be wasal. Wasal, which means now, hair extensions as such. And also, the wig wouldn't be a hair extension as such, number one. Number two is, when coming to actual hair extension, the scholars, they said that, what the hadith refers to is that if a person was to extend hair using an impure material, number one, or using human hair, then that would be haram. No, they consider that to be haram, um, even though there was one position that stated it to be makru. Uh, what is, however, permissible, if a lady was to use a material that is synthetic and not the hair of another human being, then the correct opinion among the Shafi scholars were that such hair extension will be permissible if the lady is married and her husband gives her permission to, to do so. Uh, so if I am able to sum that up very briefly, hair extensions with human hair or impure hair is haram. Uh, however, hair extension with um, synthetic hair or non-human hair or hair that is not uh, impure, will be permissible if a lady is married and a husband gives her permission to do so. Um, the wig, however, is not hair extension. And the wig is a, is a set of hair that a lady will wear over her hair and not extending it to her hair or attaching it to her hair in any way. Um, 
even though some of the modern wigs would mean that she may glue it onto a onto a scalp. Um, so the wig is something that uh, uh, accordingly would be permissible. If hair extensions are going to be permissible, then placing a covering over the head, especially in the Maliki school, they considered a wig just to be placing something on the head like a hat. So the wearing of a wig would be would be permissible. However, the scholars they spoke about if a lady is covering her hair with a wig, is she allowed to go outside in the public in that manner since her original hair is covered? And they said no, even for her to wear a wig outside, which is not her real hair and her real hair is actually being covered, it will still be haram for her to for a strange man to see her like that because that would be part of her zina, her adornment and beauty that Allah prohibited her in the Quran to expose or to show uh, in front of strange men or in the in the public space. Uh, and in short, this is our discussion regarding the wig. I'll sum, summarize that again. For a lady to wear a wig would be permissible if the wig is um, doesn't contain human hair, if the wig is doesn't contain impure hair, if the hair on the wig is pure, then it would be permissible for a lady to wear such a wig uh, for the sake of her husband. But she may, if she goes outside, it would be required that she still covers the hair on the wig with a scarf or the, or the like. Uh, also, uh, she should be very careful that when performing hudu or ghusl, that one cannot be wearing a wig while doing so because one needs to ensure when performing hudu and ghusl that at least part of the forehead is wiped when performing hudu and the entire head including the uh, the scalp has to be washed while performing ghusl if all of these can be kept in mind and can be abided to then there should be no problem for her to wear a wig and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best shukran so much Malina the following question says Assalamu alaikum Malina I have three children two of which is boys and one which is a girl is it okay for me to make my only daughter the executor of my house or does this responsibility fall on the eldest son kindly advise Bismillahirrahmanirrahim um, the idea of placing an executor on your will, the executor of the will doesn't really do much. And the real executor is actually the lawyer that will be uh, doing all the necessary and required paperwork and eventually the distribution of the estate. Um, uh, that being said, um, the executor in reality, when I sign someone off as executor on my will, that executor, the only role that they play is to approach the lawyer, to advise the lawyer that so-and-so has passed on, to show them the will of the of the deceased, and the rest will be dealt with by the lawyer. The executor has a very, uh, uh, very small, if any, role at all to be playing when it comes to the estate, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Of course, the executor will have the right to take a decision what lawyer to send the will to. Um, so there is some role after all. However, all of this would be uh, a something which is very similar to appointment or wakala. And uh, when appointing someone as an agent to do a business dealing for me or to do a business transaction for me or to sell my house or to purchase my house, scholars don't draw a distinction between males and females. I can appoint a female uh, estate agent to sell my house for me and there's no problem therein. So similarly, if the parent wishes to appoint a daughter as an executor, meaning someone that will be acting as an agent, as a wakil, 
to approach and take the matter further with the lawyer. I cannot see any problem with that and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much Malina. The following question coming through via SMS 47913 is the number in which you want to get your questions answered. That is where the number in which you need to send it through. The following says Assalamu alaikum. Malina I'm presenter of All Is Well in Studio. Malina what is my right towards my siblings as the eldest brother to my siblings? Is it my responsibility to take care of my sisters if they are working but not married yet and what if they are married should I still take care of them Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi Ajma'een um, the um, I'm going to I'm going to discuss this question slightly broader than than the actual question and that is the responsibility of communities towards human folk um, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it's impossible for you and I to imagine that Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that Allah would reveal a religion to Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam where any member of society is going to be wronged. Uh, there's a lot of discussion around gender-based violence happening within our community these days and this may be an excellent platform for you and I to establish how Islam take, takes care of women and that how women are honored and that the Western lifestyle that requires and makes a woman feel almost obligated to go out and earn a living and to fend for herself and to sometimes assist her husband in putting food on the table and covering the rent. That is one of the great forms of oppression that has been placed with upon women. A lady with an Islamic state in an Islamic world, an Islamic environment, is honored, is respected. She's treated as a queen when she's a mother. Jannah lies beneath her feet when she's a sister, rather when she's a daughter. The Prophet ﷺ said that whoever takes care of three, two or one daughters and give them a proper upbringing, there will be a means for that man to enter paradise. And thus women folk throughout their lives they are constantly uh, dealt with, with with care. When she's a wife, our Prophet ﷺ told us that your wives are uh, are trust, are entrusted to you by Allah and thus they are trust. And if I do not deal correctly with my wife, I am breaking a trust that I have taken with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah will hold me accountable for that. So human folk are always protected, human folk are always uh, always supposed to be looked after. When a lady is a divorcee or a widow within a community, the Prophet sallallahu encouraged men to show support, financial support and care. So he said, المسكين, The one who strives to put food on the table or to support financially a widow, and one may add to that a divorcee, is like one that is striving in the way of Allah. Another narration the Prophet said, is like one that is fasting all day. And that's the Prophet ﷺ ensured that women are taken care of. Uh, the actual question here is that the elder brother, is it his responsibility to take care of a sister, uh, of his sibling, one of, one of his sisters? And then he said, this, if the sister is, if they are working but not married yet. And what if they are married, should I still take care of them? So the general rule is that um, a child, rather a sister, a sibling, if he or she is working and they are able to take care of the financial needs by themselves, then of course um, um, it will no longer be the responsibility of the mother and father to take care of the child, as how it will no longer be the responsibility of any of the other siblings to take care of someone that is earning their own monies. However, uh, if that sister decides not to work for whatever reason, and she now requires somebody to take care and support of her, uh, then the mother and father needs to show a support, financial support. Um, a son, however, that is capable of working 
and decides not to work expecting that his father should take care of him, it will not be an obligation upon the father to take care of such a of such a son. But such a daughter needs to be taken care of because a daughter should never be made to feel obligated to go and earn a, a living for herself. Um, that's one point. The next point now is that the siblings. Um, the Shafi school does not consider it the siblings, the brothers' responsibility to take care of of sisters in one opinion that exists within the Shafi school. However, an opinion that I feel much more comfortable with is that of the Hanafi madhab that says it is as how it's the father's financial responsibility to take care of daughters. Similarly, it's the financial responsibility of brothers to take care of the financial needs of, of sisters. And therefore, my advice to this brother is that if you have, or any elder, any brother there, and it's not the duty of the elder brother, all brothers, whether it's the youngest brother or whether it's the oldest brother, if you have a sister that is struggling and a sister that does not have financial income, then it's your responsibility to take care of her, it's your responsibility to put a roof over her head, it's your responsibility to put food on, on her table. Uh, this is something that I feel very strong about in light of the general ethos of the Sharia that emphasizes the, the the need to take care of sisters, brothers that are not doing so, in the opinion of this uh, weak individual, is doing a great injustice towards their sister and may be answerable for that in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and I hope that this answers the question clearly and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. The following questions coming through via the SMS 47913 says Assalamu alaikum I'm presenter is it possible for one to attain the level and status of prophets through pious deeds? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa sallallahu alayhi wa sayyidina Muhammad wa alayhi wa sahbihi ajma'in There's a very often quoted narration that is not authentic when Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala said that there's no basis for this narration meaning there's no Isnad or Sanat for the narration and Allah knows best where uh, the narration reads that the Prophet wasallam said that uh, the ulama of my ummah are likened to the prophets of the Banu Israel ulama ummatik anbiya ibn Israel so that particular narration even though it has no basis it sort of creates the impression in one mind that this, a scholar or a man of piety may reach a similar state to that of the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um also also um um uh, i remember one of the great scholars of our time a doctor muhammad saeed ramadan al-buti rahimahullah ta'ala uh, once he when he spoke about some of the great salihin of this ummah and the names that he mentioned what i remember in particular was he mentioned the name of sidi ahmad al-rifai and he may have mentioned the name of sidi abu al-hasan al-shaduli and when he made reference to these people, he said that they were so detached from this world and so connected to the Lord Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they had no sin, they had no wrongdoing. They were not infallible in, in a sense that uh, it was impossible for them to commit error or sin, like the Anbiya alayhi salatu wasalam. It was possible for them to sin, but they did not do so. And that's Dr. Muhammad Sa'id Ramadan al-Buti, when he spoke about him, he said these people, they were like prophets, except that they did not receive revelation. Uh, and based on that, can somebody reach the status of a prophet or similar to that of a prophet? I'm almost sure that there will be a difference of opinion among the scholars. But just based on one of the great scholars of our time, Dr. Muhammad Sa'id Ramadan al-Buti, he spoke of some of the pious saying that they were like prophets, meaning that one could reach at the state, uh, except he said that they did not receive revelation. 
And that's effectively why nobody can be like Anbiya. Nobody can be like the Anbiya because a hallmark of the Anbiya is that they receive revelation from Allah. Revelation has ended with the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and thus no one can claim to receive revelation any longer and thus you cannot be like the Anbiya. In terms of your state of piety, uh, for the very least we know that there would be scholars the likes of Dr. Muhammad Sa'id Ramadan al-Buti that says that one could attain such a state. But effectively it would mean that uh, uh, one completely uh, dedicates himself to his Lord Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, cuts himself, himself from all matters and desires related to this lower life, this worldly life. Um, uh, he abstains completely from sin, all types of sin, big and small. And uh, for one to actually attain this, uh, it's not it's not easy, it's not simple, but it's something that we should strive for. May Allah allow each and every one of us one day in our lives to reach a point where we can abandon sin in its entirety, where we can disconnect from this lower life, from this worldly life, and be present and connected to our Lord 24-7. Ameen, Ya Rabbal Alameen. Shukran so much, Malana. The following says, Assalamu alaikum, Malana, I'm presenter. What is meant by the saying, if you do not sin, then Allah will replace you with another nation. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Um, the narration that I'm familiar with says that um, the narration that I'm familiar with says that if we do not uh, take our religion, the, the meaning of it is because the exact wording is not coming to mind at this point in time, that if we were if we do not take our religion seriously and we do not call people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah will replace us with others who will take their religious religion seriously and will call to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, the, the verse for some reason is not coming to my mind at this point in time. Uh, the narration quoted over here, if you do not sin then Allah will replace you with another nation. Uh, something to this meaning uh, may have come across in the past and the meaning of it would be that um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, uh, the, the narration in no way is telling you to go and sin. The narration is telling you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is uh, us forgiving. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is most merciful. And there will always be a people on this earth that is going to display and show acts of disobedience so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could always be us forgiving and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could always be, be merciful. Uh, that would be my immediate understanding of the narration. Uh, uh, one cannot understand from such a narration that I should start sinning because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants that they should be sinners. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to sin. No, that is an incorrect understanding. Allah wants from us obedience. Allah wants us to turn towards Him. Allah wants us to worship Him and Allah wants us to abandon sin. A narration of this kind, if it does exist, would merely be emphasizing that they will always be those that are sinning and thus Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always be al-ghafoor and Allah knows best. Shukran so much for that Malina. The following question says, Assalamu alaikum Malina, I'm presenter. Hope all is well. Kindly advise what to do in a situation if you cannot perform a slaughter for your son and daughter due to financial difficulty. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Uh, the aqiqah is an emphasized sunnah for any individual entrusted by sacred law to take charge of the financial needs of a newborn, uh, which in most instances, but not exclusively, would be the, the parents. Um, the legal request 
remain suspended upon the parents to perform the aqiqah for 60 days after the child is born. If the parents after 60 days uh, um, has still not performed the aqiqah, then the uh, responsibility or the request of performing that aqiqah would, would fall away. Uh, there's an article that I wrote on this and uh, it reads that uh, the legal request or directive remains suspended for the duration of 60 days after the child has been born. Thereafter, depending on the financial condition of the parents, the legal request may or may not cease. If the parent happened to be financially capable to perform the aqiqah at any given time within 60 days after childbirth and fails to do so, the legal request will remain until the child reaches the age of puberty. On the other hand, if the uh, parents were financially not capable of performing the aqiqah within the 60 days, the legal, the legal request comes to an end uh, and he and she will no longer be requested to perform the aqiqah. So if the uh, parents were not financially capable until 60 days came to an end after childbirth, then the request for performing aqiqah falls away. If the parents were capable but did not do so, then that legal request will continue uh, upon their shoulders to perform uh, as a as a as a qada, so to say, uh, and that in in short would be the answer to to the question. I want to read the question once again. Uh, kindly advise what to do in a situation where you cannot perform a slaughter for your son and daughter due to financial difficulty. The answer is that uh, if that difficulty remains for the duration of sixty days and you are not capable of performing, then the request of performing aqiqah falls away. However. If within that 60 days you find an opportunity to perform the aqiqah, you should do so. If you do not do so, then that request will remain there until the child reaches the age of puberty. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Shukran so much, Maulina. On that note, we came to the end of the program. Shukran so much to each and everyone sending through the questions. Until we meet again next time, we say assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.